Podcastle, episode 371, for July 7, 2015. The Fairy Ring, by Joe Pitkin, rated PG. Welcome back to Podcastle, folks. I'm Graham Dunlop, your co-editor and host, and today we have for you a Podcastle original, The Fairy Ring. By Joe Pitkin. Joe has lived, taught, and studied in England, Hungary, Mexico, and most recently at Clark College in Vancouver, Washington. He's done biological field work on the slopes of Mount St. Helens, and he lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife and daughters. You can follow his work at his blog, The Subway Test. That's thesubwaytest.wordpress.com. The story is read to you by Steve Anderson. Steve has narrated stories for all three Escape Artists podcasts, including a Parsec award-winning story for Pseudopod. He narrates audiobooks and produces online videos out of a home studio at sgacreative.com. And he writes and performs live history programs on tour at greattaleslive.com. Steve says... If that sounds like an odd patchwork of things to piece together to do for a living, well, it is. But thanks to this story, I've finally a succinct and impressive way of describing it. I'm a freelance factotum. Links to these things will be in the show notes. But now, prepare for your new employment. I'm not sure what your duties will be, but you'll find out soon enough. In the meantime, enjoy the story. The Fairy Ring by Joe Pitkin I worked for the antiquarian in those days. Mostly we authenticated art pieces, searched through contracts for unseen loopholes, inspected new buildings for flaws. Of course, the antiquarian did the actual inspecting. I was just a factotum. I made the tea, shuttled the linen suits to the dry cleaners and back, fetched a reference text if needed. The antiquarian almost never needed it. I had imagined when I was hired that I'd be answering phones and managing the billing. Had the antiquarian said as much when we met? If not, then why did I imagine that's what my job would be? But there was no phone line in the whole drafty house. I was a year out of college when the antiquarian found me. I was sitting in a tea house where I spent a long time contemplating my adulthood. That's what I'd learned to do in college, contemplate. That tea house, long since gone now, was the sort of place where one could sit a long time with a four-dollar pot of tea. The tea house arranged its hundreds of books by color. I was reading in the red room. I had just finished making a bargain with myself. Try for one more year. If on this day a year from now I felt no better, it would be all right to kill myself. A young person's bargain. I noticed another person in the room, the only other person, peering at me through a monocle. That was when lots of people in the city were wearing monocles. This wasn't the first monocle I had seen today. The barista with the neck tattoos and the barbershop quartet mustache had a monocle when he served my tea. But this new person looked a little old for a hipster. Short, slender, angular, wearing a three-piece cream-colored suit a fedora just taken off to reveal close-cropped thick black hair, barely gray, 
My first impression, which is everybody's, was that the antiquarian was a person of great power. In fact, for a moment, I thought Leonard Cohen was standing in front of me. The antiquarian gestured at the chair opposite me to inquire whether it was free. With a sinking feeling I offered it, I foresaw small talk with a lonely old person. Not that I was especially interested in reading, but I was sitting there with a book. Shouldn't that have signaled something? The antiquarian, I learned, was not much for small talk. You are looking for a job, I see. The voice was high and cracked, but still quite beautiful. I am in need of a factotum. You might think I was most surprised that this stranger had correctly diagnosed my condition when I had done so little to advertise it. I had been reading The Courage to Be at the table, not exactly job-seeking material. But what surprised me more was the word factotum, a word I had read before but never heard. I thought I knew what it meant, but I literally liked the sound of it. Factotum. Good thing, too. I asked what was involved in being a factotum. Well, that's the thing about being a factotum. You're really expected to do it all. Then, as though considering only at the last moment that the description might make the job less, not more, attractive, the antiquarian added, but primarily you would assist me in my investigations. Investigations? Anything that can be seen, the stranger said, can be seen within. Out came the monocle again. With this, I see what's within. I saw that rather than a monocle, it looked like some kind of jeweler's loop, or even more than that, like a chunk of polished crystal set in a thick bronze ring. It looked like the kind of oddity a crazy person might fixate on and build an entire worldview around. But the person holding up this old crystal didn't strike me as mentally ill, or what I imagined a delusional person to be. I asked some of the questions one is supposed to ask when considering a job. I forgot to ask some of the others, even some obvious ones, like how much I'd be paid. I'd be wise to pack a suitcase, the antiquary said, just in case. I thought on my way home of the different ways the offer could be a scam, and probably was a scam, but it was the only thing I had going right now, and I'd already taken the job by then. The first weeks were quiet enough. I had to straighten up the antiquarian's enormous house, which needed a good dusting and mopping, but was otherwise as orderly as the Library of Congress. The house did have a hundred display cases to wipe down. Displays of fossil teeth and tusks, of leaves and amber, of tropical beetles and moths. There was a hall of carved African masks and a hall of clay Mesoamerican masks. The antiquary seemed entirely unconcerned that I would disturb the displays, or worse, break something. But I spent many fearful hours dusting around the frozen hinges of beetle legs with a cotton swab, rubbing away a layer of grime from each carapace to reveal the iridescent blues and greens. When I first heard the doorbell after a month of working there, I didn't realize immediately what it was. It sounded more like a meditation bell. When I finally walked down to the front hall, a client had been waiting there a while. A tall woman, not quite middle age, her hair pulled back into a single golden braid, 
stood in a long black coat on slender heels. At her side was a black leather carrying case, peculiarly shaped and bulky, as though it was made to carry all at once a surgical kit and manual typewriter and French horn. I'm here to see the antiquary, she said. She had almost no accent, like someone who had lived here a long time, but who had learned English from a book in her very early years. Is he in? I opened my mouth to explain that the antiquarian is a woman, or more properly, a traveler whose vocation places her at the threshold of genders and identities, but who presently inhabits the body of a woman. These were the words the antiquarian had taught me to say. But before I could begin my long explanation, I saw that the antiquarian had already come into the room by another doorway. On seeing the antiquarian, the tall woman seemed to fumble the poise she had brought in. Her fingers seemed to work an invisible rosary. The case sat on the floor beside her like an ungainly dog. Most revered hierophant, the visitor began. Please, said the antiquarian. I remembered that one of the few duties the antiquarian had given me from the beginning was to advise visitors what she wished to be called. The antiquarian prefers to be addressed as antiquarian, I said. The antiquarian offered me an appreciative nod. But we are friends here, she said. Please call me fair. I wasn't sure I'd heard correctly. The name sounded like fair, but was not fair. The R of the name was not an English R but the visitor seemed to have no trouble with the name. Mr. Fair, I come on behalf of an investment consortium called the Spiegel Group, she said. And what would the Spiegel Group want with a poor old antiquarian? I got the impression that both of them were acting out a charade of some kind, though not, it seemed, for my benefit. Your expertise is well known to my directors, the visitor replied and they wish to employ you in the project of great importance to the consortium. Well, the antiquarian clasped her hands at her waist like a seasoned host of a television variety show from another age. Shall we look at your project? The antiquarian motioned for me to lift the bag onto a sideboard table to be inspected. But the visitor caught the antiquarian's signal and heaved the bag herself. The bag appeared to have great weight, but the woman curled it like a dumbbell with a slow, smooth strength. Once she had set the bag on the sideboard, by some finger charm the visitor snapped open the hasp from the lock, fashioned like the toothy maxilla and mandible of some fossil sea creature. Within sat what looked like a small tree in a stone pot. The bag had been even heavier than I suspected. The antiquarian gave the woman a baffled smile. What does your consortium want me to inspect here? There's no trick to a tree. There's no palimpsest except the smaller tree it was in youth. Peering at the bag's contents another moment, she added, Or perhaps you are contracting me to inspect the pot. No, the visitor answered. My employers want you to inspect the tree. We are prepared to pay you handsomely to study it without preconceptions or expectations. If the antiquarian was offended at this, she didn't show it. She named a price which would have bought a Stradivarius or a Vermeer. The visitor answered that she was authorized to agree to those terms. I was sent to fetch paper and pen from a desk upstairs. 
Well, then, the antiquarian said, when they had both signed the agreement she had drawn up in a liberal copper-plate hand, I'll have my factotum carry the tree to my study. If you don't mind, said the visitor, I'd prefer to place it myself. She closed again the toothed hasp of the bespoke case and lifted it with an easy grace. The antiquarian shrugged, as though to say, suit yourself, and she motioned to me to lead the woman down to the study. I frankly resented this turn of events. In my weeks on the job, practically the only instructions I'd received were that I was not to enter the antiquarian's study. Now, this stranger was going to see inside, and my job was, I suppose, to go downstairs and open the door for her. But I did get a glimpse of the inside when the woman passed in with the case. The chamber was low and long, barrel-vaulted, the ceiling a dark honeycomb of hexagonal wooden panels. Three glass lamps, sealed like diving bells, hung from chains above a long trestle table, practically the only furniture in the room, where the antiquary had laid out calipers and probes and forceps. At the end of the long room stood a single high-backed chair, set away from the table as though to regard it dispassionately. That was all I had time to see. The visitor seemed less curious than I was, as she slipped past me to leave the massive bag on the table. A minute later we were back in the entry hall, the antiquary promising a report within, as she called it, a fortnight. Practically as soon as I'd shut the door on the visitor, the phone rang. The antiquary's cell phone, I mean. Her ringtone sounded like an old mariachi song, a woman's plaintive voice filling the entryway. Las piedras jamás, paloma, que van a saber de amores. Yes, thank you for calling, the antiquary began. Then, yes... Yes? Yes? As she listened, she motioned for me to follow her. I followed her to the landing of the stairs. As she walked ahead, the antiquary listened more than she spoke. The yes, she kept repeating, seemed her encouragement to the caller to continue, rather than an answer to any question. Finally, at the door of her study, she turned to me, holding up a finger, as though I was the one telling a long story that she would need to interrupt. Permita-me, mi amor, she said into the phone, and then to me, if I don't come out today or tomorrow, bring me something to eat and drink the next morning. What would you like, I asked, but the antiquary had already returned to her call. She gave me a carefree wave, which I took to be a farewell and a blessing on whatever I thought to do in her absence. I went back up to the insect cases upstairs the beetles glittering in a long, sunlit hall. Above them on the wall hung the clay masks from what the antiquary had called extinct tribes of the Americas, masks expressing sometimes horror with their empty eye sockets, and sometimes anguish, or rarely calm, like faces in possession of some great secret of existence. I worked all day beneath their gazes. When the sun went down, early, it seemed to me, I walked home, shivering to my apartment. I sent some texts to a few friends, but the texts I got back were not very promising. I felt like I'd dropped out of my friends' orbits since I took this job. So I ate at home, and slept 
locked in the close little pyramid of my attic room. The next morning I let myself into the antiquary's house. The still of the entryway gave me the feeling that the antiquary had not left her study all night. I thought to listen at the door of the study, but I quickly thought better of it. Instead, I went to the Lepidoptera Hall, with the windows looking out on the shaded north side of the house, the long wooden African masks with their surprised expressions. Early the next morning, I went to the Global Journey Deli to pick up foods I thought she might like, though, to tell the truth, I had never seen her eat. As I picked out the croissants and the mangoes, the artisanal goat cheese, the miso soup in a takeout pail, the bagels and lox, I noticed a label on a package of Cristini that I was considering. Reflection Organics, a division of the Spiegel Group. I wondered whether the Spiegel Group was a name I had always seen, but never noticed until I heard the name out of the mouth of the visitor with the strange bag. Or had the woman's reference to the Spiegel Group rung a bell when she said it? Did I recognize the name when she mentioned it? I convinced myself I must have recognized it. I looked at a few other packages at random. Laundry soaps, greeting cards, bars of dark chocolate, novelty socks. Several of them were made by the Spiegel Group. Some division of the Spiegel Group, anyway. On my walk to the antiquary's house, I saw for the first time a billboard for a cell phone plan, with the Spiegel Group at the bottom. Whether as the parent company of the cell provider or the billboard owner, I wasn't sure. But for a moment, I was struck by the possibility that everything was Spiegel, and I just hadn't noticed it. The food at the Global Journey Deli had cost me fifty dollars. I placed the receipt on the tray with the food. I thought better of that little touch at the moment I knocked on the door, but it didn't matter. There was no answer. I knocked again. A minute later, I tried the door. It opened, but no more than a few inches. Some weight seemed stacked against it. I called in and heard nothing. Setting the tray behind me, I pushed hard on the door, wrenching it open a few inches, barely enough to slip by. The room was still and dim. The tree that had occupied the bag had grown far larger. Shards of the pot and tatters of the leather bag lay scattered about the room like molted carapaces. The tree had grown up to the vaulted ceiling, shading out and brushing aside the hanging lamps. Branches pushed against the door. Long fingers of root had scattered tools and trailed over the edge of the table, penetrating between the flagstones of the floor, some of which had been heaved up as though by frost. The chamber had a smell of chill black earth. The antiquary sat as though at rest in the lone chair, the lens adrift in her hand. It took me a moment to contend with the shock and fright enough to go to her, but she was not dead, or at least she wasn't cold. I couldn't hear her breathing. I took her bird-like wrist to hunt for a pulse. I waited, waited, waited. After many moments, a single thump of her blood in the artery so startled me that I let go of her wrist as I would an alien thing. The anguished voice of the mariachi singer filled the room. The antiquary's phone was ringing. Las piedras jamás 
paloma, que van a saber de amores. I pulled the phone from her vest pocket. The caller ID said restricted number. I pressed the ignore button, and the room went silent again. Though not silent, a slow tapping, like a chaotic, beatless drum, sounded behind me. It came from the tree, or the table, which, for all its stoutness, must be under tremendous strain. A branch of the tree braced itself like an arm against the vault of the ceiling. A tangle of gnarled roots drove into the cracks between the broken flagstones. Again her phone sounded, Las Piedras Hamas, again the restricted number. This time I answered. There was a pop and hiss over the phone, like the sound of an early phonograph record. The hisses solidified into a whisper which called out my name. Then, Help me use the lens. Then only hissing, and then silence. I looked down at the antiquary, again at the jewel of the lens and its bronze ring. I worked the chain out of the buttonhole in her vest and lifted the stone to my eye. The room looked the same through the lens, but I saw it now with insight. I saw that the antiquary was older, far older than I had realized. Her form was dry and fragile, as though she were a paper wasp's nest, abandoned at the end of a long season. I saw that the table would break under the endless weight of that tree. More, though, I saw that the antiquary's first judgment had been wrong. There was a trick to the tree. The tree itself was a trick. It was no tree at all, but rather a pleasing shape that a blind and sleepless power had assumed. An amoral hunger, rooting into a hollow hill, had taken a tree's form, because no one suspects a tree, because everyone loves a tree. Through the lens I saw the palimpsest of this creature. It was cleverly designed by people who bore no love for anyone outside their circle, no hatred either, but who saw something desirable and aimed to take it, by main strength or by cunning. The slim green branches grew towards me, snaking forward and spreading like spindly hands. Something in me knew what I was looking at, saw the danger coming towards me. A hollow in the hill gaped black beneath the roots. The disused wasp's nest lay abandoned by the winter wind on the cold hillside. I crawled into the narrow mouth of the cave formed by the roots of the trick tree. The walls were chilly and damp and smelled of unearthed mud. I crept forward in darkness down into the hill, pausing at times to hold the loop to my eye. Through the lens even the darkness was rich with motes of light, marking the way like a trail of pheromones. The trail led me into the center of the hill. I crouched in cold slime. The close earth formed a vault above me but through the lens I could see the whole hill around the hollow I had found, every year of it, each laid on top of the one before. The antiquary had made her hiding place here. The roots of the trick tree spread along the roof of this little chamber, delving in search of something. 
but the antiquary was hidden in a nook made by a blind turning of roots. Through the lens I saw her, she nestled in a tiny space, a quiet, overwintering wasp. I knew she was the wasp. The lens let me see through to the heart of things. The antiquary was a person like any other, which is to say, a series of masks, a lonely house in which one sits and sees sidelong, after sitting a long time, a spark of light flitting across a mirror. I saw the spark, and to say the spark was a wasp overwintering is the only way I have found of explaining what I saw. I waited. I, too, had become a sleeping thing, a distant human cousin, stripped of arms and legs, mouthless, my filaments of white fungus like a raveled net of nerves. I had no eye, except that through the lens every pale thread of me was I. We waited. For days I saw the roots of the trick tree on their restless search, following the iterations of an algorithm which had failed in some way to account fully for the situation it faced. The roots hunted for the loop, but the lens was deep within me now, and the tree had not been programmed to anticipate the way I had hidden it. I slept all the night with open eye. We slept through the weeks, through what seemed a whole age, waiting for something. I was too cold to remember what it was. It was lucky for me I had no need to remember. Day by day the cave where we slept grew colder and colder. It remained cold forever. But not. One day the cold lost its eternality. The chill one day ceased to bond everything in place. I noticed nothing, but the day came that the antiquary must have felt some stirring, enough to creep from the crook in the roots of the trick tree. I was so cold that I could have no more than a single thought in a day. Maybe that's just the story I told myself to explain my slowness. Either way, one fine, clammy, slime-damp day, I felt the antiquary crawl over to me to look through the lens wherever I had kept it. Then things moved quickly. The antiquary crawled out of my sight, having taken the loop, by a technique lost to me and beyond the thinking of the trick tree. Perhaps the antiquary was no longer a wasp. I was blind now, but not for long. A few hours later, perhaps a day, I heard the antiquary's voice again, whole and powerful. The voice commanded me to fruit, and I realized my tendrils had thickened and thatched over many days. Every filament of me had, in the slow time of my waking, rooted and interdigitated through every year of the hill. The voice commanded me to fruit, and I did. At the base of the hill I emerged, a ring of white mushrooms. Then the antiquary remade me, or, to put it better, the antiquary drew me out of myself. Without the lens I saw nothing until I was new, but when I opened my eyes I knew the antiquary had plucked from the fairy ring one pale, flabby mushroom, and this rude little man-shape would be, for the time being, me. Whatever else I might appear, young or old, man or woman, beautiful or ugly, 
was a mask, worn over a mask, worn over a mask. You took quite a form, the antiquary said when I'd opened my eyes. My naked new body had been covered with a silk bedspread. I recognized it as the bed cover from the guest room upstairs. The antiquary looked younger, and it seemed to me a man. His skin was taut and supple, his short hair without gray, his nose a bit more aquiline. He wore the same linen suit. There were a dozen of them hanging in a closet upstairs, which fit as perfectly as before. The loop hung on its chain in his vest pocket. We were in the study, such as it was. The table was sundered. The tree that had crushed it looked dead now, a bare snarl of dry branches. It smelled faintly of singed rubber. I saw our corpses, the old form of the antiquary that I had once known, next to the old husk that had been my body. They looked desiccated, as though they had been dead a long time. These look like mummies, I said. It's been cold down here. There are no flies. Our bodies didn't make nearly the mess they might have. I felt a strange equanimity about my corpse lying beside me. Frankly, it seemed a case of easy come, easy go. Yet, even so, I didn't relish the thought of fishing around in the corpse's pockets for my old apartment key. Anyway, I'd probably been evicted by now. The clothes you packed for yourself should fit you, the antiquary said. He nodded towards the edge of the bedspread at a beat-up red suitcase, which, after a moment, I remembered as having once been mine. I remembered our distant job interview. I'd be wise to pack a suitcase. I looked paler and fleshier in the mirror, and not so much that my spare clothes fit poorly. After all, I had packed for myself, but my face had a rounder, more babyish look above the collar of the turtleneck I had packed. The antiquary seemed to have the same thought. Perhaps we can buy you something a little more timeless this afternoon. For breakfast we went to a place called Lola La Grande. Lola's had the best pozole, which, according to Fair, was the best thing one could eat after the experience we'd had. As we ate, I asked who the woman was that had brought the strange bag. I don't know her, the antiquary replied. An employee of the company. The Spiegel Group? That's what they're calling themselves now. They've wanted the stone for a long time. I told the antiquary that a phony contract to inspect a phony tree seemed like a needlessly complicated ploy to get at the loop. This wasn't their first attempt, and they're too sophisticated, or they think they're too sophisticated, just to knock me over the head and take it. Actually, they're not strong enough to do that. I have the lens quite heavily warded. But they might have convinced a patsy to take it for them. He gave me a pregnant look while I ate in bliss. It was a long minute before I realized that I was the patsy. I think they hoped you'd pick up the lens, the antiquary said. They suspected I hadn't warded it against you. And once you had it, they could have knocked you over the head. That's why they called you on my phone. I, I thought you were the one who called me, I said. The antiquary looked flummoxed. How would I call my own phone? It was a good question, frankly. 
They couldn't take it from you, because something in you knew what to do with it, he continued. You have a thousand forms. You took one that would hide the lens and that would keep you over the winter. You might think you have no idea, but something in you knows what to do. But if you knew they wanted to steal the lens, why make a contract with them in the first place? The antiquary shrugged with a mock helplessness. Their hearts are set on that lens. If they've come to take it by hook or by crook, I'd rather they come like civilized people and sign a contract. I would have collected a good deal of money from them if I had been able to give them a report in a fortnight. As crafty as they are, they would have honored that woman's signature. I still didn't understand my part in things. If the lens could be stolen from me, but not from the antiquary, why had I been hired at all? Why had the antiquary shown me the stone within a minute of meeting me? He seemed hurt by my questions. I should just as well ask you why you decided not to kill yourself. It occurred to me that weeks or months had passed since I had thought of the bargain I'd made. Had the antiquary looked through the lens on the day we met and seen that bargain hanging over me? Then his voice softer, I've worked alone a long time, a long time. You can make yourself lonely guarding a priceless thing. I just wanted to share what I saw with someone, and I suppose I saw something in you that you couldn't see in yourself. I looked across the table at the antiquary. I saw something there, behind the eyes, behind the bones of the face, which was the same and had not changed. I realized that we would be companions a very long time. Later that morning I buried our old corpses. I had a squeamish moment wrapping the bodies in canvas shrouds from the garage, what looked like old sailcloth, but perhaps something the antiquary kept on hand for this very purpose. Once the bodies were wrapped, the job was as easy as burying two time capsules or planting two trees. The antiquary showed me the spot to dig in the backyard. We wouldn't arouse any suspicion. No one was missing, after all. And welcome back. Cho had this to say about the story. I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking when I wrote the story, but looking at the whole piece in retrospect, I would say that there's something about life and something about love that persists in unlikely spaces. The fairy ring is about that persistence. Feedback this week is for episode 361, Traveller Take Me, by Kate Hartfield. It was read by the redoubtable Wilson Fowley. Folks on the forum were a bit mixed on this one, and on the whole there wasn't a lot of feedback. Chuck said, I like the Canadian alternate history aspect of it, and I really liked the narration. And there was singing. That due end at the end sounded really authentic. I could believe it was a married couple singing together. Um, there's a reason for that. That's because it was. And Devoted135 said, I was suitably creeped out by the ghost appearing during each reading, and enjoyed the historical aspect as well. 
However, I did feel like it was the middle of a story and the beginning and ending were somehow missing. The ending in particular seemed quite arbitrary. Well, folks, that was our show for this week. On behalf of us all here at Podcastle, thank you for stopping by and listening to this week's story. We will be back next week with another. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop reminding you that anything that can be seen can be seen within. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's delivered under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de. Podcastle could not be without the generosity of our donors. Did you know that you can support us for just $2 a month? A regular donation of $2 helps immensely, more than you might think. One-time donations are, of course, also welcome. If you can't donate, help spread the word of Podcastle to your friends. Write about us on your blog or Facebook, or wherever your social media ties. Leave us a review on iTunes. That also helps. See you next week.